This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. In your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Exodus 5, verse 1, hear the word of God. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, Why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall not by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. Taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That's why you say, Let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble. When they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you've not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, 
For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. We give thanks to the Lord. For his word. Let's pray and ask for his blessing and his assistance as we study it together. Our Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. And Lord, as we come to it, we do so as your truth, your word, your revelation of yourself and your grace and your plan of redemption for your people. Father, as we study, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The young church planter had everything going for him. A supportive mother church. An excellent multimedia presentation to show to the congregation to set forth in their minds a vision for the potential of the new work. Twenty families coming from the mother church to serve as a core group for the daughter church, uh, a gift from the church of a large sum of money to begin with. Things look great. In fact, the church planter describes it this way. He says, what a way to begin a church. Optimism ran high. As the fair-haired boy, I was told by friends that great things were about to happen, and it would not be long before the new church would be larger than its mother. Such talk enlarged my expectations. I believed it. And we did things right. Our denomination retained a church growth expert who instructed us in the broad principles and minor subtleties of growing churches. They sent me to seminars on church growth. We obtained aerial photographs and demographic projections, commissioned ethnographic studies, consulted with the county, chose the target community with painstaking and prayerful premeditation. Beginning a new church is exhausting work, and we went for it with all we had. I found myself attending meetings, strategizing, canvassing, counseling, preparing sermons, and borrowing pianos, pianists, projectors, and pulpits. 
Then came the Sunday ritual of preparing the rented facilities for worship services, sweeping out the trash from the community center, unloading the big storage trailer containing the pulpit, microphones, hymnals, rugs, rockers, playpens, and then in the evening working in happy Christian fellowship with the entire congregation to disassemble and pack up our church for another week. From the start, we had everything going for us. We had prayers and predictions of our friends who believed a vast, growing work was inevitable. We had the sophisticated insights of the science of church growth. We had a superb nucleus of believers. And we had me, a young pastor with a good track record who was entering his prime. We expected to grow. But... To our astonishment and resounding disappointment, we didn't. In fact, after considerable time and incredible labor, we had fewer regular attenders than during the first six months. Our church was shrinking, and the prospects looked bad, really bad. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe it was in your work, or maybe it was in marriage or some other relationship, or maybe it was in school, or maybe it was in your neighborhood. Maybe it was even in a church plant. Everything looked good. You didn't see how anything could go wrong, and yet it wasn't working. In fact, prospects looked really bad. I think Moses could relate to that. He had everything going for him. God did not just call him with a sense of internal call. God appeared to him and visibly and audibly from the burning bush called Moses to go and deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. He answered all of Moses' objections. He addressed all of his fears. He gave him his brother Aaron, who could speak really well, God himself said so to be his companion and spokesman, to go with him, to be there for him. All Israel there enslaved in Egypt was excited, 100% behind him. They believed that the Lord had spoken to Moses and that Moses was here to lead them to freedom. And everything was looking really good. And then Moses and Aaron stride confidently into the presence of Pharaoh, the mightiest ruler on the face of the earth. And they say to him, the Lord told us to tell you, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no. And Moses said, please? And Pharaoh said, mm-mm, not going to happen. Not only were things not going well for the Exodus, it appeared to be a complete non-starter. Moses learned something very important through this experience of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, it's a lesson that you and I need to learn as well. And the lesson is this. For the believer, success is defined ultimately not by results, but by faithfulness. For the believer, success is defined ultimately not by the results we see, but by our faithfulness to the Word and the command of God. Why is that? Well, as we look at this passage, we want to show that it's really for two reasons. First reason is this. Results can be quite misleading. 
We see this in chapter 5. Moses did what God had told him to do. He and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and yet things didn't go as they had hoped that they would. In the first place, Pharaoh refused to get on board with the plan. We see this in the first few verses. They go in, they announce to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, a phrase we know well, right, from the prophets of the later Old Testaments. When God speaks, his prophet says, thus says the Lord, that indicates that this comes with all the authority, all the command of God himself. And they confront Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, their request was bold to be sure. Uh, However, it may not have been quite as unprecedented as one might think. It does seem that uh, even in Egypt, people would get days off for special religious observances. Uh, So this might not have been an entirely unknown idea to Pharaoh, but he also saw it for what it was. This was an announcement of some, to him, foreign deity, some unknown deity. Notice what Pharaoh says in verse 2. Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? Notice the the small caps there for Lord. Who is Yahweh? That's the name that the Lord revealed himself to Moses by. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Because you see, Pharaoh not only saw himself as the king, he was the chief deity of Egypt. And so he sees this not just as permission to go off and observe religious practices, but as a, an affront to his standing, as he saw it, in his position as a deity. I do not know Yahweh. I don't know who this is. I don't know, do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So Moses' tone changes a little bit. Moses and Aaron say, well, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, a little more polite tone here, please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness. And they give a reason. Lest he fall on us with pestilence or the sword. So he's trying to reason with Pharaoh. He's polite. Please let us go. If, if you don't, then this God might fall on us with judgment. Pharaoh's response, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to work. Go away. Moses and Aaron found that uh, Pharaoh was not as eager to cooperate as they hoped. And notice what Pharaoh says in verse 5. Behold, the people of the land are now many. Is there fear in that? Is there pride in that? Look how many slaves I have. There are many, and you make them rest from their burdens. So the results can be misleading. Called by God, goes in, and Pharaoh refuses to comply. Not only that... Things went from bad to worse. And you see this in the bulk of chapter 5, verses 6 through 19, where Pharaoh gives instructions to the Egyptian taskmasters, who are in turn to pass it along to the Hebrew foreman, that they are to continue making bricks for these construction projects as they have done before. However, instead of being given straw as they have been in the past, they will now be forced to go out and collect their own straw, which, of course, will take time and energy away from making bricks, but they are to make just as many bricks as they did before. The straw was essential to the brick making, to hold it together. They needed it, 
And so they had to go out and do their best to come up with what straw they could. In fact, verse 12 says they were scattered to gather stubble, chaff, for straw, to try to find something to put in these bricks to make bricks. And yet the quota was not lowered at all. And they complained, they complained to the foreman, they complained to the taskmasters, they complained to Pharaoh himself. Verse 15, why do you do this? Your servants are beaten, but the fault, you must get the sense they changed it at the last minute. The fault is with your own people. Remember, this order came from Pharaoh himself. This is unreasonable. What's Pharaoh's res- response? Verse 17, you're just idle. You're lazy. That's your problem. You're just lazy. That's why you say, let's go sacrifice the Lord. Now get out there. You're not getting any straw. Get your own and make just as many bricks as you did before. So not only does Pharaoh not obey, not cooperate, but the whole situation, which was bad to begin with, goes from bad to worse. It's unreasonable. might even say it's impossible. And when they fail to do it, they're beaten. They're suffering even more. Another reason results can be misleading. Not only does Pharaoh do not cooperate, not only does the situation deteriorate, But Moses and Aaron faced criticism from their own people. Notice what happens in verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. While they blame Pharaoh, they're really blaming Aaron and Moses. Moses, you you have put a sword in Pharaoh's hand to slay us with. Now, remember, these were the same people who, at the end of chapter 4, in verse 30, when they spoke to them the words the Lord had spoken to Moses, verse 31, the people believed. And they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and they'd seen their afflictions, they bowed their head and worshipped. Same people, but now they're turning on Aaron and Moses. All you've done is make it worse. They're going to kill us. Why'd you do this, Moses? Why'd you do this, Aaron? They were doing what God told them to do. But it didn't seem to be working out so well. A couple of observations just to think about before we move on to the next part here. Number one, struggle, difficulty, even failure does not mean you are, to use the expression, outside the will of God. In the first place, how could you ever be outside the will of God? You can disobey him to be sure, but God's sovereign. Don't give yourself so much credit. But people have this idea somehow, well, this isn't what God wants me to do. Now, I thought it was, but now things are, seem to be falling apart. Maybe, uh, maybe I missed the right street. Maybe I've gone in the wrong direction. Well, maybe you have, but God's sovereign over your mistakes, too. Don't give yourself so much credit that you can somehow undo the providence, the sovereignty of Almighty God. But just because there are struggles or failures doesn't mean that you're outside God's will or contrary to his will, maybe another way to better way to put it, or that somehow God's displeased with you. Moses and Aaron were doing exactly what God had very clearly told them to do. And yet it didn't seem to be going well. It would be very easy to conclude as Moses was tempted to do, as we'll see, and the people of Israel certainly uh, concluded this was the wrong thing to do. It wasn't working out so well. 
results can be misleading. Another observation is that success can be generated by human ability. Look at the growth and spread of some of the cults, for instance. Is that the blessing of God? Is that the power of the Holy Spirit? So results can be misleading. And the Lord knows that difficulty and even failure can be good for us. Sometimes better for us than success. It teaches us humility. It teaches us character. It teaches us faith. The church planter I described earlier talked about some lessons learned through that experience. Uh, To be faithful and to break that down, what does that look like? Well, serving, loving, believing, prayer, holiness, attitude, all of these different things were things that he learned that were cultivated in him through the difficulty of that church planting experience. So the first thing we see here in chapter 5 especially is that results can be misleading. Struggling, difficulty, even failure may mean you're exactly where God wants you to be. But then the second uh, reason that for the Christian success is defined ultimately not by results but by faithfulness is found, the second reason is found uh, from chapter 5, verse 22 on into chapter 6, and that is this. The second reason is faithfulness to God is success. Faithfulness to God is success. Moses was struggling terribly here. Pharaoh hasn't cooperated. The situation got worse. The people are turning against him and blaming him for making a bad situation worse. And notice what Moses says. Verse 22. People turn on Moses. Verse 22. Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? What? Now, you and I know the rest of the story. Moses doesn't at this point. He hasn't read the rest of Exodus yet. He hasn't even written the rest of Exodus yet. Why have you done evil to this people? Moses is pretty irritated with the Lord. You know, he's a little bit of the Jonah thing here. He was reluctant to go. Finally goes, unlike Moses, Jonah actually experienced success and was upset with that. Moses is seeing this failure, and he says, Why have you done evil to the Lord? Uh, to this people, Lord, why did you ever send me? Since I've come to Pharaoh, he's done evil to the people, and you've not delivered your people at all. Moses. The people are irritated with Moses. Moses is irritated with the Lord. Faithfulness is success. Moses doesn't see that. So notice what, in chapter 6, the Lord has to say to Moses. Now, you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. By the way, the Lord already told him this. Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. He's not going to let the people go. God speaks, and then he does. He already told Moses this, just like Jesus already told his disciples a whole lot of things before they happened that they didn't understand even as they were happening. Now you'll see what I'll do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. He's not going to just let them go. He's going to drive them out of his land, Moses. Now, we're to be faithful to the Lord in two senses. We think faithful. A couple of ideas come to mind. One is a sense of having faith, of believing, trusting. And that's essential. Faithful means you're full of faith. You, you trust. You believe in the Lord. 
But it also, of course, the sense we tend to think of it means being obedient, being dutiful, being responsible, carrying out the assignment you've been given. You were faithful to do it. And both of those are in play here. Moses needed both of those to trust in the Lord and to do what the Lord said. But obviously, at this point, he's, he's badly lacking in both. He challenges God. Why did you do evil to this people? Why did you send me? Things have just gotten worse. Well, we can be faithful to God for two reasons, as these verses uh, explain. Look at verse 2. First of all, because of who he is. God, notice the first thing the Lord says to Moses here. Moses complained. He tells him what he's going to do with Pharaoh, but then he says to Moses, verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. In one sense, he could stop there. That's all he needs to say. And this is what he said to Moses at the burning bush. He's reminding him who he was. I am sent you, right? Tell the people I am has sent you. He says, I am the Lord. I am who I am. Yahweh, which has to mean something like I am. So basically he's saying, I am, I am. I am the Lord. And that's repeated several times throughout this passage as we go along. Notice also, he says, verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. So he is the Lord. He is the the all-sufficient, self-existing, almighty God. He is the covenant God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who has made these promises and is going to fulfill these promises. He's also the God who knows, who is aware of what's going on. Moses isn't giving him any new information. Verse uh, 5, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel. I've remembered my covenant. Moses comes to him and tells him this thing, these things. It's almost like the Lord says, why are you telling me this? I know these. I, I've heard them. I've seen them. I'm aware of it. Remember the end of Exodus 2. The Lord saw and he knew. So we can be faithful to God. We can trust in him. We can obey him for two reasons. One, because of who he is, is the true living God. The God who has given the covenant promises to his people, the God who knows our circumstances, who knows our situations, who is not unaware when we're hurting or when things are not going well or when we're struggling or when we're tempted, whatever it might be. Remember who he is, the God of the burning bush. I am the Lord. But also remember what he has promised. Look at verse 6. Now, there are two phrases that stand out that are repeated. One is, I am the Lord, several times through here. And the other is, I will, I will, I will. These promises that God makes and emphasizes that he is going to do. Moses can't see it. Israel can't see it. They even doubt it. But God emphasizes what is going to happen. And as you and I know, what in fact does happen. Uh, Look at verse 6. Say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. The first thing he's promised is redemption. I'm going to redeem you out of Egypt. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to bring you out. 
And of course he does. He brings them out of that slavery, out of that bondage, out of that misery to the land that he has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we need to remember that the Exodus was a historical event, and it did happen, and it was an act of God's mercy and redemption. But we also need to remember that the Exodus points forward to a greater redemption that is accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the term there, to redeem, is one we're familiar with in the ministry of Jesus. It means to purchase the freedom of another with a payment. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us, the new covenant people of God. Through his death, purchasing our redemption, buying us out of our bondage to sin and death through the payment of his own life, giving himself over to the judgment of God that those who believe in him would not endure that judgment. So the first promise of God, both for them, but in an even bigger sense for us today, is redemption. Another promise is adoption. Look at verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He doesn't just say, well, I'm going to see you to the border of Egypt and wave bye-bye and wish you a happy life. No, he's with them. He will adopt them. They will be his people. He will be their God. There will be uh, an eternal covenant, a bond, their relationship that God establishes with them. Of course, the same thing is true for us. And the New Testament fleshes out Romans and in other places that doctrine of our adoption as God's children. He is our covenant God. He is our God. We are his people, but in a very personal and intimate and familiar sense so that he is our heavenly father, so that we are his children. God does not redeem us in Christ and then tell us, well, you know, that I've saved you. I hope everything goes well for you and have a nice life. No. We live each day in relationship with him, as not just as creatures to their creator, but as children to their heavenly father. So redemption is a promise he makes here. Adoption is a promise that he makes to them here. And then another promise that he makes is that of inheritance. And we see this in verse 8. Look at verse 8. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Why does he keep saying that? Why does he keep saying, I am the Lord? Because if he's not, then it calls into doubt whether these things can happen. You see, the promises that he makes uh, and our being able to rely on those promises are based on who he is. So he keeps repeating, I am the Lord. That's why you can count on these promises. That's why you can trust in these things, even though you don't see it happening now. Because I am the Lord. Not only do I tell you the truth, but I have the power to back it up. I am the Lord. Repeat it. I am the Lord. To reassure, to give confidence. This inheritance. They would inherit the land of Canaan. Actually, their children would, because you know how in their unbelief they refused to go in. You and I inherit something much greater. We inherit in Christ a new heavens and a new earth, of which that land in Canaan was just a, a, a type uh, a foreshadowing of a much grander inheritance uh, of the new heavens and new earth that belong to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the Lord comes to Moses and tells him, Moses, you can be faithful because of who I am and because of the promises that I have made. Do not walk by sight, walk by faith. Yes, it looks bleak now, but this is what's going to happen. Now notice 
People are still struggling. Verse 9, Moses told the people this. Right? The Lord said, tell them this. Moses did. They didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. They weren't able to hear it because of how much they were suffering. And life is like that sometimes. When people are suffering very deeply, you could speak truth to them. But you need to recognize they may not be in a position really to be able to hear it, to process it, because of the amount of suffering they are enduring. It doesn't mean it's not true. It just means they, they don't really hear it. And not only are the people still rejecting him, rejecting his message uh, in verse 9, but notice what, Mo, what the Lord's response is. People aren't accepting the message, but notice verse 10, the Lord so, so the Lord said to Moses, go in. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let his people go out of, let my people go out of his land. You see, Moses says, well, the people aren't listening. The Lord's response is, well, you go and do what I told you to do. Moses is feeling his own inadequacy. Verse 12, but Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel has not listened to me. Then how do I go in and tell Pharaoh to listen to me? My own people listen to me. How do I expect this Egyptian king to listen to me? Because I have uncircumcised lips. Which is anatomically interesting to think about. But his point is, uh, either that he, as he said before, is not a good speaker, slow of speech, as he said earlier, or maybe in the sense of Isaiah, who is before the Lord and said, I'm a man of unclean lips. That dwell among a people of unclean lips, that Moses is saying, I am completely unworthy to declare the message of the Lord to Pharaoh because I'm a sinner, because I'm a weak and frail and faulty human being. Either of those are true, his slowness of speech perhaps, and certainly he is a sinner and unworthy to do this. What's the Lord's response? It's the same thing. Verse 13, but the Lord told, uh, spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel, about the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He keeps saying, Moses, back on task, back on task, back on task. Moses needed to worry about being faithful and let the Lord take care of the results. The people won't listen to me. Moses, go to Pharaoh. But, but I'm inadequate. Moses, go to Pharaoh. God was going to take care of the results. Moses just needed to be faithful, just needed to do as he was told. The success before God is defined not ultimately by results. Let God worry about the results, but by faithfulness to his word. Yeah, that church plant we talked about earlier did not go as planned. And yet the Lord taught Pastor Kent Hughes some valuable lessons through that experience. Uh, Kent Hughes later recorded those to the benefit of others in his book, Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. Excellent book. Uh, those lessons served him well in that church plant, and they also served him well in later ministry. Having learned that success looked more like faithfulness than results as such, he could write, Later, when we moved to College Church in Wheaton and began to grow, we were excited to be part of the growth, but actually it meant less to us than some would expect. In our hearts we knew, and we continue to know, that we may never be more successful than we were that night in our struggling church with 25 people. You see, Moses here was learning lessons that would serve him well later on. He was going to indeed see results. But first he had to learn to be faithful, trust the Lord, obey the Lord. 
And so we, too, learn some invaluable lessons during times when things aren't going the way we hoped or when they seem to fail altogether. What are some of those lessons? Let me just give you a quick, uh, quick bullet point list. God's ways are not our ways. Funny, but God may not buy into our plan quite like we hoped he would. God's ways are not our ways. God's timing is not our timing. God's purposes for our life, or this part of your life, may be far different from what you have in mind. Apparent failure does not mean ultimate failure. And what looks like failure to us, and maybe to those around us, and maybe to the world, does not necessarily look like failure to God. So I ask you, brother or sister in the Lord, where is God calling you to be faithful? Where is God calling you to be faithful right now, even when in that area things do not seem to be going as you hoped they might? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your job or or lack thereof. Maybe it's in your schoolwork. Maybe it's in your relationship with a friend. Maybe it's in a ministry the Lord has you doing or is calling you to, but you keep saying no out of a sense uh, of fear of failure. You see, don't live by sight. Live by faith. Live by the Word of God. Be faithful. Leave the results to God. After all, when the Master in the parable evaluated his servants upon their return. It wasn't their success he commended. It was not their success that he commended. Rather, the master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us grace to be faithful, even when faithfulness doesn't seem to be working. Because you are God. We trust in you. We want to obey you and serve you. Father, teach us those lessons through this passage of Scripture that Moses learned. To judge things not by sight, but by your truth. Not by what we see or don't see, but by faithfulness to you. Not, Lord, looking for the approval of men, but the approval of God. And Father, we pray that as we are faithful, you would bring about the results in our lives and through our lives that you would like to see in us and in the world around us. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.